0: What's up everyone welcome to a brand new episode of the unbalanced note all the shows about music i'm brian kluger i'm in dallas texas and i'm joined by the co-host with the most the man who i just want to live in the stacks of lp records for life and listen to soundtracks mark
1: chaffordini what's up buddy hey man it's so good to see you and hear your voice and at the at the uh, cost of maybe plagiarizing somebody, Brian, you spin me right round, baby, right round both sides. Good to see you two. Both the A and the B side. I like it. It's always good to see you. We have such
0: a fantastic episode today on the Unbalanced Note. We have an amazing, a legendary intercontinental champion of music. Oh my goodness, JC Chambordon. He runs Milan Records, which is part of Sony Masterworks for the past year, and they have put out some of your favorite soundtracks on vinyl, including The 5 Bloods, Pan's Labyrinth, The Revenant, Birdman, and Green Book. Hi, glad to be here. Nice to get to be
2: here on the podcast, and congratulations on saying my name perfectly.
0: Oh, amazing! I mean, I, I was practicing for the last few minutes about it because I just want—I don't want my Texas accent to come out and <laughs> mispronounce it. But JC, man, we are so excited to have you on this show today. JC, for those of you who don't know, um, basically is Milan Records. Milan Records uh, has released your favorite movie soundtracks for a number of years. We're going to get into all of this, but first we have to start at the very beginning, like in Sound of Music. Where, where did it all begin for you in music?
2: Well, you know, I'm very flattered by the introduction you made, but the real Milan records person, the, the original gangster, I would say, is my father, uh, Emmanuel Chamboredon, who started the label uh, 40 years ago in Paris. Um, and, you know, it was a uh, family owned, independent. So I never really wanted to work in music, uh, never something that crossed my mind, but I, you know, I, we had, uh, my family and I were very close. So growing up, I saw, I saw my dad working. I heard him on the phone working from home. So I was always, I knew what he was doing I was interested. He would tell me stories. Uh, I remember one of my memory, because he was already doing soundtracks, releasing soundtracks to movies. And one of my early memories as a child is uh, him driving me to school and he would tell me the stories of the movie he would see at screenings. So I would say this is the most vivid memory I have. It's me in the back of the car seat and him telling me, oh, last night I saw that movie and this is what it's about. So This is kind of this, you know, kind of learning of your parents' trade by talking to them and being around them. Uh, so it's really how it started. And I will say maybe it's a diff... My introduction to music is more actually through movies. I prefer, I always say that I'd rather go see a movie than going to a concert. And I was always more, and I think with a lot of people who work in the soundtrack business, I think I've been more impacted by music in a film that I love than by a particular song that I heard on the radio that made me fall in love with music. I think it's really related to image. And I think it's also related to the fact that I saw my dad uh evolving in that world
0: that's a that's an interesting thing because i feel like both mark and i are the same way in that we love getting like hearing the music in the movies rather than on the radio like for instance you know when beverly hills cop one and two came out i would just want to hear the songs from that movie rather than what whatever was playing on the radio and i think combining the two, the film and the music just brings in a whole new direction for music. And it was that, so you said you you didn't want to go into music. What did you want to go into at first?
2: I mean, um, I think I, when I really started having, a, at first, first I wanted to work for a little while in a hotel management and restaurant, And then I did a summer internship where in a hotel kitchen and I cut all my fingers cutting potatoes in one day. And I was like, this is not for me. I'm too clumsy, Uh, but the real, I would say the real desire, which is the reason I moved to the U S and eventually started working full time with my father at Milan records was I wanted to work in movies. So, I got very fortunate to be able to move to California to go to film school at USC. And that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, that's really, really what I wanted to do. And, like most very, like the majority of film students, you don't end up working in movies. <laughs> uh, so, but that, I was, that's really what I wanted to do. That was my drive. Um, and it's kind of related to what my father was doing. So, so they were doing. there were connections, but I think the real, the true passion was uh, watching movies, wanting to be part of that world, wanting to direct. Um, I think one of the advantage of growing up in Paris, it's uh, you have so many revival movie theaters uh, where I grew up. I mean, Paris. Uh, I don't think L.A. has it. it, it you can watch in Paris. Every classic in on screens. So every one theater I was like, oh, this week is John Ford week. Uh, this week is Alfred Hitchcock week. Um, so uh, so I, growing up in Paris was such a fantastic way uh, to educate yourself about movies and the classics and all type of movies because it was all there for you. So I would spend. I remember as a teenager in my early 20s i will go to the movie twice a day after school and on the weekend three times a day because uh, that's really what i loved
0: no yeah that, same here and so i've got to ask if you don't mind while you were in film school, do you remember some of the films you made? Do you remember like some of the good movies you made in college and what they were about and like what music were added to them?
2: Okay. Uh, yeah, I still have uh, in a closet all my DVDs of my short film. Uh, music-wise, actually, uh, I remember the first one I did uh, and the music I used, which I always love to use for my short film, was the music of Astor Piazzolla. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He went, do you remember? Do you remember Twelve Monkeys? Oh yeah, because well, the opening track is a tango piece. Okay, uh, and that's Astor Piazzolla. Or if you know, remember the movie Happy Together by Wonka Wai, Uh The music of Astor Piazzolla is heavily is heavily used in this film. Is a kind of. He was a um, uh, uh, Argentinian tango composer. But he's the first one was brought tango from the dance floor to the concert hall. Because tango was very made for people to go dance, go to the club, go to parties. But he made it very cinematic, very orchestral. And his music is extremely cinematic and has been used in many, many movies. So I, uh, I used a lot of his music in my short films.
0: Awesome, awesome, awesome. I'm glad that you remember all that. Have you watched him recently at all?
2: Uh, I actually watched a music video I did uh, late one night. I could not go to sleep, and it still hold up. I was not ashamed.
1: Awesome! 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 It, that that rarely happens with student films and student projects. I, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't know if it's a connection, but um, what you tried to do with hotel and restaurant management. I actually, um, I'm a, a, my profession is in interior design and architecture, so I'm in hotels all the time. And so I look back on the things that I did, even reviews I wrote last year. And I just, you always want to move forward. It's difficult to look back because a lot of times you just go, ooh, you cringe or stuff. So that's great that that worked out for you.
2: <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, I mean, some of it is, you know, but I think there is, a, you miss the spontaneity of, you know, I think when you're in film school or any trade, you think you're going to, especially when you're, when you're like, you know, you're thinking, "Oh, I'm gonna be the next lax Tree. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that." So I think there's a, a spont, you there's a spontaneity sometimes in your early work, whatever you do, that I think is uh, sometimes you miss. You feel like growing up. You're like, "Oh, I wish I still had that energy or the desire or not caring what other people think." You know, there's a little bit of uh, nostalgia when you look at that thing, even if it's not polished and perfect and. Some of, it is, some of it is cringeworthy, there's still a spontaneity of use, uh, which uh, which is nice to revisit.
1: Sure. And you know, the funny thing about most creative people is that when you're young or you're trying to find your voice, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And that sort of, you don't get bogged down into the minutia of what works and what doesn't. You just try stuff and a lot of happy accidents get to happen. So interesting. Yes.
2: And I will say one thing, what I, what was interesting, because when you grew up in Europe, movies is really considered, before being a trade, it's very intellectualized, it's seen as art, the vision of the director, and moving to, to Los Angeles and going to film school, it was a fantastic experience to, to learn that it's a group effort, and that movies is not just about a crazy director with his vision, it's about very, almost like in the army, people coming from all walks of life who get very good at specific trade, and I think American Film School was very good at teaching. Like it's a group effort, and that I really appreciated. And I think also it helped, it helped me afterwards in uh, at the label.
1: Excellent, excellent.
0: Did you did you take uh, a French cinema class at USC? No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Go 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 for the easy grade there. <laughs> yeah. um, so, what do you remember? What type of uh, class was your favorite taking in film school? I'm always curious on like where film majors go to school and like where they tend to gravitate to. Where did you tend to gravitate as far as film wise, besides you know directing and whatnot? i was in
2: uh, oh, i remember i you know not a, there there was one screenwriting class that i really really liked. We had a fantastic teacher uh, but I would say it was more the it was a, no the funny story is that I was in a department called critical studies at u s c which is cast a on net where you basically spend time watching a lot of movies and writing about them, while the production department has a much more smaller uh, group of students. And the other one who get the most uh, access to, sorry, we have the most access to, and you call it, to, to equipment and being able to do the films. What I really liked is that I had a good group of friends and we decided to kind of do our own curriculum and do the short films we are not allowed to do. That's the thing that I really enjoyed. And that's really, you learn by doing it. We had excellent teachers, very inspiring teachers, but the, the exciting memory was to have made a close group of friends, and we were like, well, we're not allowed to enter these classes, so let's do our own movies, uh, as if it was our own classes. So that was really fun.
0: That's awesome, that's great. Okay. So. Growing up in the business, do you remember your first album you ever had that was your own, like it wasn't your parents or anything? Do you remember the first album you got that was your own? Okay. Uh, well, you're going to be surprised, but I
2: grew up li- – I started listening to mu- music pretty late. Like I watch movies. I have more memories of watching movies at a very young age. And I can remember very vividly movies that I watched very young music. It's completely the opposite. I was listening to hip-hop. So I think I started listening to hip-hop in 91, 92. And I think the first album I bought was by a French hip-hop group called NTM. And the name of the album was Authentic. i going to talk to a lot of people here, on the, uh, on, to your listeners, but that was... Um, uh, my music taste was hip hop, hip hop, hip hop,
0: hip hop. Great. And so you said that you remember fondly the films. Do you remember at an early age what movie really stuck for you?
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, it's they, uh, it's gonna sound it's very random, but Monkey Business by the Marx Brothers. Uh, my parents put me in front of all the Marx Brothers movies at a very early age. Uh, War of the worlds. The, that, that's a movie I will watch all the time, like several times a day. Uh, but definitely, as yeah, the, the a early, very early, like maybe three or four year old, it was definitely the Max Brothers movies. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah.
0: Uh, huge
2: And Tech Savory.
0: And Tech Savory. Good stuff. Yeah, my, brother, my brother was a
2: huge fan of Tech Savory cartoons. And I remember, like, Watching them all the time. Awesome,
1: um, awesome. And I'm glad, you know,
2: they, they, I was, exp- I was exposed, like Charlie Chaplin, and not, I'm not saying that to be pretentious. And look, I was young, watching all this great stuff, but I think this, it's not at all what I'm trying to come across as. But I think uh, I was having this conversation a long time ago with Nikurada, the composer, and I think there's a benefit of being. Exposed to certain things at an early age that you're probably not going to be be exposed to later if you don't if you're not exposed to them at like at a very young age and I think it's probably even more true today like I have friends who have children and they never show them a black and white movies or like the old cartoons and I think they're missing out to build their taste
0: right because yeah. I think at a young age you absorb it more and. Yeah you're being shown it. at like your full attention, but older you get, you have to actively seek out and pay attention to it. And some people might not have time for it. So I'm glad. I mean, I think Mark and I are the same way in that aspect where we were introduced to the classic films as young kids in that, in that way you appreciate modern and future cinema more because you know where it's come from and how it's evolved. Yeah. Do you feel that way with movies and music?
2: personally I think it's very important and I think actually even uh, growing up in the hip-hop culture that's even more enhanced in that culture because at that time you you really you needed to know the history you needed to know the classics to to appreciate it and I think it's very uh, you know I think it's important i think it's respectful and I think it builds taste I know it's a some people take offense when you say that uh, you know, like everybody has a different taste. But I still think to build your taste, you need to have some sort of, refer- of deference to the classics. And it doesn't mean you have to like them; you can find them boring, some of them. And you build your taste. But I think knowing why certain things are relevant and what they meant is important to build taste. Uh, I really believe so.
0: Awesome. Yeah.
2: You know, I think for me, when you look at all the big movie directors that the three of us love, they were movie fans at first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I don't think it's a mistake that a lot of the greatest directors were movie fans first yeah. and realized that movie history started before The Godfather. <laughs> uh, right up. <laughs> no, it's very, yeah. I think uh, I really, uh, It doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean you need to have that knowledge to be a great artist at all, but I think it probably makes you a more rounded person. And I think it makes also life more interesting on a personal level.
1: Right. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Sometimes uh, I I think uh, I, I tend to have this problem. I tend to think that movies from the 80s are you know the greatest ever but then if you do that then you miss out on the 90s and you miss out on the matrixes and and the rocks or you go back and you miss out on the rockies and you miss out on the ace in the hole and if you do that both musically and theatrically you do like you said you need to appreciate more even if you don't like it even if it's not your focus so um i mean i remember i grew up with Cary grant in my house there was a movie called mr blandings builds his dream house so um, I grew up on that and, you know, Brian and I grew up on The Thing before we could even, you know, see an R-rated movie. I mean, it's it's why we are who we are today, but yeah, very, very true. So, JC, you have a working relationship with um, Nicholas Winding Refn. Can you tell us about when you first met him, how you first got to collaborating and what you do with uh, the, the label?
2: Yes, uh, but... Uh... It's a very unique relationship. Um, it started when we managed to release the soundtrack to Only God Forgives, uh, which we chased for a very long time. And you know, I saw Drive in theaters, and that's how I discovered Nicolas Winding Refn. I had never seen Valhalla Rising yet; I had not seen Bronson. Um, so I discovered him with that movie, and I was. Blown away by the movie, by the music, by his style. And I really wanted to do his next film. And it's I got to meet him at the premiere of Only God Forgives. And he's a very big music buff. And, you know, it. we kind of created a very simple and organic relationship. And it started by, after Only God Forgives, we decided to make his past catalog available. So we released Valhalla Rising, which were never released before. We released Bronson, the soundtrack to Bronson. And then during a the trip to Copenhagen, he wanted to start a series of soundtracks that he will curate. And that's how we got more and more involved in working on music together. And I believe the first vinyl we reissued together was a score to Old Boy. Uh, the Korean film. And then we followed with Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, um, Nagisa Oshima movies, scored by Ryuchi Sakamoto. We did Robocop. We did The Terminator. And we did Akira. So we worked together on these three issues, um, from deciding which project to do, the artwork to use, and, you know, it has strengthened. It's a very easy working relationship. And that also led us then to do the Neon Demon with him and To All to Die Young, which is the most recent release we've worked on together. Uh, He's he's a very unique person. Most directors are not that involved in the soundtrack side of things. Uh, And that's one of the part of my job I enjoy working with him is that it's it's a great opportunity to get to work hand-in-hand hand with him on all this musical project. Uh, it's, uh, so yeah, that's, how we, that, that's what we have together. It's really the release of his material for his films and TV shows. And on the side this side project we do together in conjunction with his new website by nwr.com and also soundtrack issues from our catalog or from other studios.
1: Well, uh, going back to what we talked about earlier in uh, the interview where you said you're a um, you're not a retrospective release label. Um, how, how do how do you brand that or how, how does that structure work? Because, you know, like you said, Akira is an old film and so is RoboCop. But then Too Old to Die Young or uh, Neon Demon are, are modern films. How, how does how does that structure or the rights of those work?
2: Well, it was not part of any business plan. Uh, the reason we started doing these reissues is because of that conversation with Nicholas one day. I'm like, OK, let's do it. it. There was not a conscious plan of, OK, now we need to get into the reissue vinyl game. Uh, it just happened based on that conversation, and we felt we could do some interesting and cool projects together. Uh, but the core business of Milan Records remain contemporary and new releases. Um, I think, as I mentioned very often, there are excellent companies uh, like Mondo and Waxworks who do a fantastic job at reissues. We do it sometimes because of the size of our catalog and because of its relationship with Nicholas that it's in no way to to, to compete with them, it's just kind of, I would say, I what, what would be the good way to describe it, it's just one little area that's available to us because of our catalog and our relationship. Okay.
1: Well, you know, Robocop is a great film. It has such cultural awareness. It's a touchstone, same thing with uh, Old Boy uh, for more um, modern cinematic viewers. But um, are there titles that maybe uh, Nicholas suggested that you hadn't heard of, or did you try to maybe influence him and say, hey, let's do Betty Blue? Yes, I
2: think the one Merry Christmas, uh, Robo Old Boy came from him, Cop Terminator came from him. I think I sold him on the idea of doing uh, Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence. One we wanted to do, but I think every label has tried to do, and it's still up for grab. And who knows if it's going to ever happen? Is a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And <laughs> uh, I think it's one of these other holy grail uh, of past soundtracks that a lot of people would like to see out. We've tried to do it, but that didn't uh, that did that didn't come to fruition, unfortunately.
1: Okay, you know, um, in another interview, I think it was the uh, the MondoCon at home. Uh, you mentioned that uh, it seems like everybody knows that Tron is somewhat off the books when it comes to trying to to get the rights. Uh, why is that? And are there other things that uh, are so are so far in the the past, like? Casablanca hasn't been issued. So what, what keeps you or any label from doing that?
2: Oh, well, you have one, one uh, very common reason is the complexity of the rights sometimes, uh, especially for very old films. Often maybe the companies that control those rights went bankrupt or the producer passed away or the paper trail is not there to really know who owns the rights today. And that's really the main reason very often why these things don't come back to uh, on vinyl is that it takes a lot of work to hunt down who is in charge, uh, uh, who owns all rights now. You don't want to make that mistake because you don't want somebody to come after you, uh, after the fact that, know I'm actually the, the owner of all this. Uh, there is one project and Nicholas and I have been trying to do called Karel, uh, and it's uh, same. It's a it's a Werner Fassbinder movie, German film, and it's great film, great score. But the, the situation with the rights is very complicated. Um, so it's usually the main reason is to track down, find out is to track down the right holders.
0: Growing up with your dad with Milan Records and growing up in that in that arena and business, and now you are in charge of that now. Ha, have you had have you had your hand in every hat of production from picking the soundtracks, from pressing vinyl, from picking the colors of the vinyl artwork, and releasing in promos?
2: I also. There are two phases.
0: When I started, I started working at Milan
2: in 2004 after I graduated from college. And I don't know if you know, but Milan. Uh, so uh, now, since last year, we've been acquired by Sony Music, right. and now we're we're an imprint of Sony Masterworks. But before that, during that time, 2006 to 2019, yes, I mean that that's what I call my MBA. I, for reasons that's a long story, but for basically my, um, my dad had an office in Paris, always, and eventually was able to get, to establish himself in the USA. It started by being distributed by BMG, so he had his office in New York, when BMG had this big building on on top of the, on top of the Virgin Megastore on Times Square. And then in 2000, he moved the office to LA where we moved distribution to Warner Music. Then in 2004, when I started, we had offices in LA, in Burbank. We were distributed by uh, Warner Music. And I started working when the industry was going through a very rough patch, Uh, you know, when CD sales started collapsing, piracy. Uh, the slow growth of digital and like a lot of other labels, you know, I think at the time the label was structured as a 90s label. And it went through a very, 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 very rough years. When I mean rough, I mean very, very rough. And, but that gave me the opportunity to touch every aspect of the business. And that I feel, that's why I call it jokingly my MBA, but I did A&R. I did publicity. I did finance. I did a little bit of royalty. I did, uh, what else? Pretty much add, I, I kept an eye on every aspect of it to pretty much keep the business afloat and make sure and be, find a way to restructure it that it will survive and make it through uh, that rough patch and come out Ready for the new reality of what the music industry was. So I t- that I think was a great aspect was being able to. Now that I look at look at it, I, I hated it at the time. It was very, but now when I look back at it, I feel very fortunate uh, because I was and my you know uh, my father was the owner, was a boss, but he was no micromanager. He was in France and the way the, he, 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 he he let me kind of uh, touch a little bit of everything. And that was great. That was very helpful. I think it was a great education. Uh, I think, uh, and same thing as it goes back to our conversation about movies. It gives you also an appreciation about what everybody does in the music business. Uh, and that sometimes the most important people are not necessarily the one who are in front of you. Uh, right
0: So I've got to ask, doing all like your jack-of-all trades during that time, where did you find your happy place in all of those roles, and where what was the most stressful?
2: Um, uh, the happy place the happy place is related to the most stressful, the real happy place, wives. And I just I didn't do it on, all on my own. But the happy place was to have been able to 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 have the label go through that rough time and not close. Uh, that is a, and that was the most stressful time because you had to make it happen. And it's a conjunction, it's a connect, it's a it's a, it was you know conjunction of the stars aligning, a little bit of luck great staff uh, a couple of projects that give us a purpose the ability to solve the issues we had so the greatest joy was to because you know it's like I mean yes the relationship I have to mean record is very, very strange because for me it was not just a job it's like it was a uh, family business it it was my, fa- my father's legacy so my my uh my, my involvement was like I believe that the label goes through that rough time, uh, and so the happy place, uh, the happy place at that time was to have won that gamble, uh, won that bet, to restructure it and make sure that it keeps on going. But it was very stressful.
0: All right, so kind of like a two and one type of thing. Exactly, if,
2: if... but at the time, you know what, what did I like doing? You know, I enjoyed. Uh, you know, I enjoyed, uh, you know, the A&R at that time was, I was not really into the a and I enjoyed, you know, it's going to sound weird, but the part I enjoyed was kind of doing the things that were all more difficult, I enjoyed dealing with uh, the financial aspect because I learned something, Uh uh, the negotiation with lawyers, like all the kind of things that a lot of people don't want to deal with, I kind of enjoyed doing it because I felt like I was growing and also I felt that I was concretely resolving problems. Does uh, problem. that make sense? Yeah, um, so
0: you're like the equalizer, the, the problem solver.
2: <laughs> no,
0: I, I, you know, I, had
2: just, I mean, I want to go back. It's not like I, I had also... We, we always, had,
0: we were, always we were
2: very fortunate to have a very good staff, dedicated staff. Uh, it's, you know, I think that's one of the great aspects to work at an indie label where you use it. It was not a toxic environment, it was tough, it was rough, but it was, it, we all enjoyed working together and everybody, everybody wanted the same thing. And it's nice because now a lot of these people who no longer work at Milan, uh, they, all, uh, they all have flourished and evolved in different aspects of the music industry and that's also a very nice great thing to see
0: that's cool, and so mm-hmm. now I want to go back to what you said earlier about uh, coming in in 2004, so at least me I don't remember if Mark has, but I've been, have my first record I ever got by myself was Michael Jackson's Bad in the 80s and I've Always stuck with records, and through the mid to late '90s, and even I think through maybe 2007 or eight, most most people weren't don't remember that they were supposed to roll a joint on a record on an album. So it became CDs and MP3s and all that good stuff. So I'm curious on you being in the business from 2004 when. Not a lot of vinyl was being released until now, maybe 2009 or 10, when it just exploded with a vengeance, more, uh, you know, kind of indie labels are popping up and stuff like that. Why do you think the world needed vinyl and why do you think it just still needs it? Because I eyeball I for it. I've converted a lot of my friends to records and that's the way to go. <laughs> I think it was.
2: I'm going to going to start with a, a story when we released the soundtrack to City of God, the Brazilian movie.
0: By, by and, the way, by the way, by the way, I have to say that City of God is one of the best films ever made, and oh, one of the you. best soundtracks yeah. ever made. Yeah, no, it's Definitely. amazing.
2: <laughs> and at the time, so we released it CD. I think at the time it was just CD. I don't think it iTunes was there then. Maybe I'm not sure. But anyway, and there was a label in England called Vinyl Junkies uh in london the guy contacted us he said let's do a vinyl we have to do a vinyl and we're like we've not done vinyl in years and Giles peterson like the soundtrack was a thing in the uk and that label that guy who ran this music store called vinyl junkies was like do a vinyl you're going to sell a lot of it i want to buy it exclusively and i think we did a thousand or two thousand vinyl he sold them like that and that, that kind of struck a chord with us. We're like, oh, interesting. Uh, and then the next big vinyl we did, which I think is still to this day one that did great business, that like we were looking at, which one should we do then on vinyl? And Then we did Malone Drive, uh, which did very, very, very well. And and then I think the I don't know what where I relate back to your to your question why did people I think the main okay now to go back to why do people wanted vinyl I I had a musician a French musician who had told me once before the revival he said I'm betting you that vinyl is going to come back because everything is digital and eventually people are still going to want to have objects that define them. And I think the, you know, CD, I mean, I'm of, I'm going to hate a lot of hate for this, but I'm of a CD person myself. I love CDs. I grew up in the 90s. I love, it. I've made a Gigi pack everywhere. Uh, but I think vinyl is just a beautiful object. It's like an art book. And I think it today it really defines someone for their taste. Like if you have everything on your phone, on your computer, uh, it is. It define. I think it's like the object, the piece of merch that's at the same time beautiful that defines people's taste in front of their friends, in front of their ma- families and shows them this is what I am about. I have a million songs on my playlist, but this thing, this is who I am. I think there's a lot of, uh, and I think it's why you see a lot of revival with certain types of books, certain type of objects. And also to, I always give back credit to them, I think also Mondo, uh, really gave, gave a, a boost of use to that the soundtrack game because the soundtrack game for a long time was kind of, a, you know, it's not the most rock and roll part of the music industry. Uh, it's not, you know, the you get your key art, you get the notes, you put the album together, you master it, you sell it. Uh, it was not the most creative aspect you know you had the studio giving you all the tools and you had to present it and then i think mondo i think they were the first one to do it coming with this idea of alternative poster and colored vinyl i think they really gave a major boost of what what soundtracks could become and how it could be marketed and that it goes beyond just releasing a soundtrack in conjunction with the film so i always say that they did they did. Uh, they did a very. They, we have to be. I think the industry should be very thankful to Mondo, because I think they, not just them, but they are big reason why physical and vinyl is still relevant today.
1: And, and you know, that's one of the, the differences between Brian and I, you know, when I like posters, I like to see something I've never seen before. So if there's a, a take on it, that's interesting. You know, Brian's very diehard to say the original Back to the Future poster, whereas I go, or maybe like the vinyl, I go, I, I like that aspect of it. So it really does cater to a different market. Yes. Um, and, and and it's an interesting place that you're in right now. So, you know, you said that Milan was like a, a, a 90s label. So you've transitioned it in 16 years to future, you know, forward looking. But then, like you said, physical media by going backwards and you're able to give somebody something that they curate that really, like you said, defines their tastes. Um, so it, it's interesting when when you're dealing with these record companies and you're dealing with the the rights holders. I guess, you know, what can you take us through a day in the process of being and I want to touch on something you said on the MondoCon panel where you said you're contemporary-based, not retrospectively-based. Has that changed now that you've been acquired by Sony?
2: No, it's still it's definitely still contemporary-based. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm a firm believer, you know, I, we get some reissues because of the size of our catalog, because of the partnership I have with Nicholas. But I want Milan to be seen as a contemporary label. And you know, in Hollywood, people like to put a, a label on you very quickly. There's always this joke that when you're a composer and you start doing comedies, you're going to do comedy for the rest of your life, and you're never going to get away from that. So I was always very mindful of this. Um, OK, we're doing reissues, because we have and City of God and, and Drive* and a lot of classics. But first off, the reissues are people who do it much better than we do with much more passion. Uh, so, and what excites me the most is the contemporary titles. Uh, that's where my competitive edge uh, gets fired up. And also, uh, and I would say my main drive really to narrow it down p- personally for my, uh, is to be a very small part of projects that I think are going to matter and mean something. So it's not just about, oh, we need to sell a lot of records. A lot of our choices, and I think that a lot of our choices is let's do our best. I want to be associated to projects that matter. Like I want to be able to look back. You know, there's a lot of crap. Huh? There's a lot of stuff. I mean, <laughs> if you want to do an episode about the... <laughs> the bad the bad soundtracks we released there's a lot of them in the archives but overall I mean the 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 drive was ah I want to be I, I want to be I want the Milan brand to be associated for that with that movies or that TV shows or that anime because it represents something and that's a double-edged sword because sometimes you you your personal taste gets in the way or you miss on things that become relevant. Uh, but so now to go back in the more a big part of the uh, what my day is consists of. I would say a big part of it is looking for projects, negotiating, making offers, uh, reading about what's being produced, reading reviews, kind of looking what's in production, what's coming. Uh, but that's kind of it's not like it's kind of all the time, you know. It's like, it's like if you you know if you're passionate about interior design, I'm sure that at night you're going to read a book about it, and you're like wonder, oh, what this guy is doing. So it's kind of, I don't call it work. It's kind of what I do. It's kind of that research. And then the more day-to-day has to do with uh, following our project that are in production. So it's making sure it's um, making sure that every aspect of it is handled correctly. Uh, Coordinating. I mean, I'm more of an intermediary. I would call it my, my colleague Stefan and I now, especially it's more like that at Sony. We're more like the intermediary between the creators, the studio, and the people who are putting the album together. Want to make sure that everything, everything is taken care of. Uh, We are being, we are just, I'm at the same time an advocate for the needs of the label and the creative need of the artist. And I try to make sure that both Meet in the middle, and that there's no conflict, and that at the end of the day everybody is happy. Uh, so most of my day today is making is, go, is uh, following the project until completion, and that re- that means every aspect, making sure that production is going well, that artwork is approved, that the composer is happy, that the studio is happy, um, that all the deadlines are met. And of course, I have a lot of people uh, helping us with this, but this is kind of the major part of the day he's following the projects and then finding new ones
1: okay well you you had a really big win this year i have to pat you on the back virtually uh for putting out cowboy bebop um was that 20 years in the making because i know that it recently had their 20th anniversary with you know big Uh, and
2: that's cowboy bebop it's all started so i've always uh uh uh, it started because uh, when was this? In 2014, I've always wanted to go to Japan. It was high on my bucket list. Uh, in, um, you know, sorry, yeah. starting again. Growing up in France, uh, we grew up with Japanese animation. I mean, France, I think, is the largest market for Japanese animation At in the 80s, especially after Japan.
1: Wow.
2: When you were a kid in France, you didn't really see Transformers or Scooby-Doo or like the American uh, Cartoons. It was 4 p.m. It was just Japanese animation. So we were like, I grew up on it, uh, and I always wanted to go. And then in the 90s, you had all the movies of Takeshi Kitano, who were very popular in France. So I wanted, always wanted to go in Japan. And my dad, wa- my dad, who had worked there many times, said, "Listen, if you don't meet them, you're never going to work there." So I came. He said, "I'm going to, probably going to be one of the last time I go." And he was going after a project so we went together and we went to meetings together and we were going for the soundtrack to a film called uh, the boy and the beast by mamoru osoda who was the director of wolf children and my first meeting in japan business meeting was with toho and and then i went back a month later i loved it i loved working there and starting taking meetings with more and more companies. And the main project that I was after was Akira. Uh, it's my favorite anime of all time, favorite soundtrack. When I saw Akira the first time, my head exploded. I never had seen something like this. And that's always a project I wanted to release. I remember when I started working at Milan, I had returned to the right holder, and they completely say, no, I'm not interested because I did And Acura is the one that took three years to put together on numerous trip. And that opened a lot of doors. Uh, Acura, I would say Akira is probably one of my proudest achievements.
1: What do you think about Steam Boy?
2: i never seen it.
1: Ooh i think
2: yes, I I mean, did the music i think
1: yeah it is fun it's one of steve's best work one of yeah. his, his earlier works um yeah. you released summer wars uh do you still have the rights to that can you transition things that you've done to vinyl pretty easily now that you yes. okay yes summer yeah usually
2: you can you get all the rights but you kind of try to see if there is you kind of you know i think to now there's a uh, then we should go back to God by Biba, but cover if you want, uh, but summer was, you know, a big thing with vinyl is that I believe there's a thing as too many vinyl, and a lot of my job as well, I think, is to also assess if there's going to be a demand because vinyl is expensive. Okay. Um, you know, then you sit on stock, and if it, you know, it, so I have kind of a rule that if I can't sell a minimum of a thousand vinyl, I'm going to try not to do it. Uh, uh, and so Summer Wars is one, you know, we did uh, Wolf Children, Boy and the Beast on vinyl, but I don't see. I don't know if there is a demand for a vinyl of Summer Wars. And usually people ask us, you know, they go on Twitter, they're like, when are you releasing this? Are you going to release that? And we don't really get that for this one.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: And Cowboy Bebop was, to go back to, to your earlier question, Cowboy Bebop was the next, now, you know, it, it, Cowboy Bebop, we we reached out to the right holders, met with them, made a presentation. And I think at that time we had a solid track record to have worked with enough Japanese companies that they felt that we were a reliable partner. Nice. And, you know, and I think in Japan you have to go there. I mean, uh, I enjoy working there. Uh, it's a different way of doing business. Uh, but you have to go there. You can't work with them by email and phone calls. They you, they have to meet you uh, and see who you are, and you have to reassure them. But Cowboy Bebop was not complicated to put together. Uh, Akira was much more challenging. Good to hear. Uh, Akira, yeah, Akira was a very very challenging project because there were so many parties to convince and get approval from.
0: Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, I'm going to head into a few of the fun questions right now, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. All right. So starting off, what is your most thrilling movie and music moment, both as a fan and as a person working in the industry?
2: Uh, Does it have to be a movie I released? No, No, it doesn't have to. No, it does not. I would say my favorite. Uh, there, are, there are plenty of them. If I had to pick up one that I always go back to, it's a score to a French film called Betty Blue, which was directed uh, by Jean-Jacques Beineix. Uh, we did the movie Diva. And it's, I think, one of the best, most beautiful score ever. It's by a composer named Gabriel Yared which has had a very long career, and it doesn't age. It's the score, it's, uh, it's catchy, it's extremely evocative, fits the images, and it has, even almost, what, 30 years later now, it, has, yeah, it still feels extremely contemporary. That, we'll say, is my number one score. Then I will say, now it's going to sound very cheesy, uh, on an emotional level, because I remember it, the first movie I went to in the theaters was to see E.T. Uh, with my dad, but there was only one seat left. So I remember seeing, watching E.T. on my dad's laps. Wow. And even now when the movie plays and I hear the music, it makes me cry. I mean, it's like it's completely stupid, but it's like that. As that's, that's also a, – a, and the music also made a strong impression on me. It's one of my favorite John Williams
0: score. What, um, what do you think about – because, I mean, that's a – a wonderful, remarkable story that you actually got to see that type of movie on your dad's lap and just like the closeness and the bond as in the movie with your dad. But is there something interesting or something peculiar about John Williams score that just evokes emotion like that? Like even just listening to it on a CD or record still makes, brings the waterworks. Who's cutting onions here type of thing. What do you think it is?
2: It's, uh. I think it's uh, I, I think it's when I, I will relate. I think it's a, yeah, he, it's it was that period where he had that just he had the fire with him. I don't I don't think you can explain it. I think your composers or any artists have a period in their career. Was it just whatever they touch is gold? Uh, I think Maurice Jarre uh, had that when he worked with David Lean when he did Lawrence of Arabia, then he did Doctor Zhivago, and then uh, I think it's a Passage to India. He never really well, he replicated that on that label. I think certain people have for a period of time just that, that magic touch. And Because when you listen to the ET score, that's not really age. It feels very, you know, you listen to it now, you're like, oh, it sounds very modern and cool. And uh, So I don't think there's an explanation. I think it's just that magic touch. And I think it's also a very subjective feeling you have when you've experienced something, something a certain way.
0: All right, all right. If you, JC, were able to curate a fun evening of listening to soundtracks, what soundtracks would you pick?
2: Okay. I would say I would put on soundtracks to compo- to recent composers that are maybe not yet on the forefront but who I think are fantastic. I would say A Ghost Story by Daniel Hart. Uh, I think he's, he's one of the best composers ever, right, working right now. Um, uh, I would say Utopia by Cristobal Tapia de Vier is another good one, uh, which really impressed me lately. Who else would I play to introduce music to? Uh, you know, anything by Joey Shaisi. Uh, from his work with Takeshi Kitano, everybody knows his work from Miyazaki, but I think he's, I love his work on Sonatine and Fireworks and The Kid's Return. I would like to introduce people to that. Um, all the early Maurice Jarre work before he moved, uh, before he moved to the U.S.
0: Uh, it's fantastic. Um, I would start with those. Sounds awesome. Invite uh, We're invited, hopefully, <laughs> to yes, this curation yes. evening.
2: <laughs> we'll, about, we'll open a bottle of wine. And it's like, so
1: <laughs> and, and actually, I have a kind of similar uh, question. You know, uh, now that vinyl is, is really getting its day in the sun and it's increasing in popularity. Um, if you were to put a starter pack together and give to a young JC and say, this is going to take you down a rabbit hole of an amazing musical journey, you know, but you can't wait 30 years to get this. So here, I'm giving it to you now. Can you pick maybe five things that you want to give young JC to start spinning?
2: And song, can it be only soundtracks or it, it can be anything?
1: It could be whatever you want. I, I was trying to make it uh, Milan specific, but really open it up. Milan, this, Milan specific. Luke, okay. Milan. All right. Milan specific.
2: Oh, well, okay. Uh, uh, as it, Milan specific, I definitely City of God uh, under the skin uh, by Michael Levy, A score to Pan's Labyrinth uh, by Javier Navarrete is quite amazing. Um, I will say for the fan of '90s score, I will say Backdraft by Hans Zimmer. Um, <laughs> I will say, you know, for me, back the fact that my dad released Backdraft, I felt it was so cool when that movie came out, and I think it's one of my favorite scores by Hans. It still holds up to his day, and it's kind of your classic '90s American movie. Uh, so I will put this one in. Um, I would add uh, and more, re- uh, and I think I will put also The Revenant uh, by Ruchi Sakamoto in there. And Excellent. probably also another classic, "Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence," uh, okay. by Yuichi Sakamoto, too. So, we okay. say that, like, if you start there, you will have a good idea of what the label is about.
1: Gotcha. So, sounds like you're going to teach young JC. Well, we're going to find a time machine. You get the vinyl. We'll put it together, and we'll see what happens.
2: <laughs> <laughs> poor, poor, little, poor, poor young JC. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I got I got one more question for you. So, yes, it's it's kind of a fun one. So, sometimes music works outside of a film and you can listen to it autonomously. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, do you have a situation where you love the music but you will never watch the film again? Or do you have something that you love the movie and you go, "Man, I wish there had been a better soundtrack."
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. I would give you, you know, I'm going to tell, I'm actually going to tell you uh, a story to answer. I, I like to tell stories to answer these questions. I'm going to give you, I'm going to, the soundtrack to Deadpool. I am not a big, you know, I'm not very knowledgeable about Marvel and DC films. So when we had the screening at the, for the film at the studio to make a bid on the soundtrack, all the other labels are there. And I came with my uh, young colleague. Uh, his name is Pablo. He had started working with us a few years ago. But, you know, he doesn't do acquisition. But he's a huge comic book fan. And when I saw the movie, you know, I—if he, he's the one who pushed us to do it. He looked at me at the end of the screening and he said, JC, we have to do this. They got the characters so right. The music is great. If I had been left to my own device, I don't know what I would have done. So what I'm trying to say here is that, yes, first, uh, it's a teamwork, and I'm glad uh, it's a teamwork, and it's the importance of having good colleagues who um, even if it's not their, their role in the company to do these things, that they feel comfortable sharing their opinion. But I think that the good example of me watching a movie, not really understanding it completely, or not seeing what it could become, and the soundtrack was a huge hit. I think we sold more than 100,000 units in the U.S. only. Uh, so I would give that as an example of a project that I was not familiar with that we decided to do in spite of my lack of knowledge because I had the right person to recommend me to do this. Now, to a good movie, I mean... A good movie with uh, where I wish uh, there were better music. I mean, I don't want to. I don't. I don't. Want, I can't really answer to this because I don't want to criticize people on their work. But that happens very often, where you see movies and you're like, oh, the, movie, the music could be so much better." That happens very often. Uh, but I can't. I'll, you know, I'll give
1: you I, a way I, out. It was a dumb question. It didn't come out. I heard what I was saying when it came out of my mouth. I thought, "Yeah, that's probably the right thing to ask." <laughs>
2: But that happens a lot. Uh, that happens a lot, uh, that you see a very good movie, and you're not going to do it because uh, the music is not is kind of the weak link. Uh, but what happens very often is seeing movies where I might not like it, I might not understand it, but the music is so special and so good that you're like, OK, let's do it. Uh, I think Deadpool for me was really the, exa- the most recent example of a success. Where I'm very grateful that I had a colleague having that knowledge, um, because it's it's not the type of movie that speak to me. But now I love it, of course. I think it's a great movie.
1: <laughs> well, give, give Pablo a, a huge high five for us because that was a I Tom Hulkenborg. He knows what he's doing, so that's just another yes. feather in his cap.
2: Mm-hmm. And, the, um, and then there is also yes, I mean that that was a great score. But you know when we saw it, we're like, oh, we might gonna sell ten, fifteen thousand units. But it became it became something on its own. Uh, and that's also the interesting part in our business is when a movie or a project become it's own thing beyond the success. I think it was Deadpool for three months, two months. Everybody was just talking about Deadpool, 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 Deadpool. And a soundtrack can become very successful when such a property goes beyond just being a success where it becomes something in popular culture. Uh, Stranger Things, I think, had that also going on the first season where it became it became its own phenomenon.
1: Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So one one of the best uh, albums you released last year was uh, Parasite. Yes. Um, And that was, can you tell us about uh, uh, when did you acquire that? And, um, you know, what went into that? Because I know that you, after it won the the Oscar, which was very deserving, there was a Oscar gold variant released. So you had, I think it was the, the green one, there was a peach colored one, and then it was the gold. So can you take us back in time to, what in your mind said we need to have this on our label or how the bidding went on that?
2: So, you know, we historically, as a label, look a lot at foreign films. And that's always been kind of a a way we distinguished ourselves. And very often, a lot of other labels don't look at foreign films. Uh, There is that aspect. So we had noticed that the movie had won the grand prize at, uh, at Cannes. Uh, the soundtrack rights were already spoken for for the majority of the world. But Neon, the US distributor, had the rights for North America. So we made a deal with Neon to release the soundtrack in North America. Then we partnered with Sacred Bone Records uh, for to have them release the vinyl on our behalf. Uh, so we made a deal with Sacred Bones and they released the soundtrack. Gotcha. Uh, but the acquisition of the property was between Milan and Neon.
1: Okay, yeah, I, th- I think, I think I bought my vinyl from Sacred Bones. Yep. Uh, okay. Yeah.
2: Okay. And, and we do that sometimes. So I think there's projects we do ourselves in-house, and then there are other projects that we are doing with uh, other labels. So we did uh, Color of Space, we did it with Waxworks. Parasite, we did it with uh, Sacred Bones. Uh, We did Dolemite Is My Name with uh, Mondo. And the reason we do that sometimes is because for certain projects, we feel that certain labels are going to do a better job than us sending it to the right audience. Uh, So there's not one formula fits all, but Parasite when, you know, I think Parasite for us goes into this long tradition at Milan records to really soundtracks to foreign films that have a potential of crossing over in Europe or in the U.S.
0: Um, So my next fun question for you is, what is the uh, most curious slash strangest recording you have in your possession? Whether it be an MP3 or a record or a CD, what's the strangest recording you have? Now, I'll let you give you a second to think about it because one of mine is... Um, so give me- Dr. Demento uh, played uh, on his radio show. It's a band called Shonen Knife, and it's a Japanese all girl punk band that sings all about food. and They do a cover of Weird Al's Eat It, and it's so goddamn good.
2: <laughs> uh, I don't think I can compete here with you. Uh, I don't think I really have something that's stuck with me that feels very that left field. I'm sorry.
0: No worries. No. If you think of one... Let me let you think know. about it
2: uh, before the end of the interview, but right now on the spot, no, it's, it's not... I can't think of one that really uh, feels maybe out there. In a... No, sorry.
0: <laughs> like it was maybe one of the outtakes from the from the Cowboy Bebop sessions. <laughs> no, the
2: other thing to learn about my business, I'm never involved in the production of the music. Usually, okay. my, we are always... The music is usually already made. Mm -hmm. My job is, my job comes in when the movie is made. Usually there's a distributor attached. Uh, My job is to convince people that they should release their soundtracks on Milan Records. But I'm never involved in creating the music for the film or the TV shows. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've always been mindful about this. Uh, uh, One thing I've learned is that it's very dangerous For a music industry person to seek as an artist. And I've always uh, presented myself as more like a facilitator. But I've never, I would not know what to do if I had to do this. Uh, You know, my goal, if you don't mind going back to this part, to describe my job, you know, my job is to watch movies and to answer two questions. The first question is that will pe- do three questions, actually. The first question is that do I like it and do I like the music in it? The second question is then are people going to want to see that movie and that show? And the final question, which is the hardest one to answer, is will people want to listen to the music after they turn off their TV or exited the movie theaters? That's my job. And I have to I, answer questions.
0: And that's like a fun yet very difficult job because you're kind of predicting people in future.
2: Mm -hmm. And you have to, yeah. And that's why you get it wrong sometimes and you get it. It's a little bit of magic, a little bit of magic and luck. And I think it goes back to the beginning of our conversation where I think taste is helpful. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think having taste is helpful and having some sort of knowledge is helpful. But also understanding that success usually doesn't repeat. I think uh, what's magical about film soundtracks is that a lot of times the success is going to be a surprise. What I've learned from my dad is that all the success. I'm going to, can I give you an example? Oh yeah. The biggest success, the biggest success in the history of Milan Records is the soundtrack to Ghost. Really?
0: Because uh, that's one of the besides Bodyguard, Ghost like sold tons of soundtracks, yeah. right? <laughs>
2: So 10 million records, uh, yeah. worldwide. And, you know, and my dad at the time was an indie label. He was like a few people. And that's a movie. He was in LA. He was doing his one time a year trip to LA for another project. And he was there nothing was really happening. And Maurice Jacques called him and said, Hey, Emmanuel, um, I have this, uh, I have this, uh, this movie I just scored. Nobody's really interested, can you come and see it? Went and see it, liked it very much. They never predicted that it, you know, he felt there's something special here. But everybody had passed on it. Nobody was interested in releasing the soundtrack. Everybody thought the movie was going to be a flop. And it turned out to be something else. But you don't predict this. And it's very an extreme example but what I've learned, and it has happened a lot in how history at the label, a lot of times the real successes are not the one you predicted. It's always a surprise. Uh, but you had that kind of intuition when you saw the movie that this is special, this is different, this is unique, this could do something. But yes, the go to my job is to be able to answer this question and make an assessment if, with people want to hear the music when they leave the theater, and it's very hard to make that call, you know I mean?
0: Right. It's, uh, and it's interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting you brought up Ghost because most people don't remember. most. You, you said it correctly. Most people thought that was going to be a flop because one of the reasons the director of Ghost came from movies like I Airplane. Airplane. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to give the guy Airplane to make Ghost? And like, mm-hmm. dude, he had a vision and it worked perfectly music and film images wise. And so it yeah. became one of the biggest movies and won oscars and
2: um, so that is, is that, i'm sorry if i segued back to this but i felt that that's really uh, kind of the key to understanding what i do
1: oh no no it's perfect that's perfect and that's it, a good point too because I, I remember seeing a video of brian tyler who after um avengers age of ultron a camera crew followed him around the theater and he kind of like you know, was just going up the escalator going in the bathroom and he thought that the way that he knew his music would be a hit is if people hummed it in the bathroom you know dude will somebody come out of the credits you know <laughs> when his theme song i'm mean, like i iron man three i can hum the uh can you dig it any day of the week um but you know that, that begs my point what is what is one film or one soundtrack that as soon as you got out of the theater you knew whether you worked at milan or not you went out of your way to get your hands on? I, I remember I went to get a Road to Perdition with uh, Thomas Newman.
2: Uh, I will, um, uh, uh, I'm will. i gonna go back a soundtrack that I really, really, really loved. There was, uh, I'm going back to that one, Happy Together by Wonka. Wai. For me is really one of the best soundtrack ever. More recently, one who gave me, who kind of showed my fire uh, was DRIVE, but we didn't release DRIVE. And when I saw DRIVE, uh, I was like, this is, this is, that, that was, this is one of the most res- recently, one of the most exciting soundtrack I'd, I'd heard. And that was the first Nicholas Winding Refn film I had seen. And, and you know, it triggered that desire that, I, I want to work with that person. I want to do his next projects, uh, but yeah, the song drive is really phenomenal. The scores, the choice of songs.
1: Do you do you, you know like it goes, in the middle of the night, and do you do you go <laughs> no, no.
2: no, but you know we are competitors. Uh, we've been in comp- we've been in competition uh, for many many years. You know, competition is good. Uh, I think it's it really uh, it really brings the best in every label. I think the I think it's good that you have all these labels doing soundtracks and we are competing with each other because I I think it has made, I think it has had a very benefit effect on the offering of soundtracks, on the presentation because we are all supposed to to up our game. You know, we I think we all look at what each other do and what we get and it keeps you on edge and it keeps you, because the worst thing that can happen to you, especially in an industry like this, when you have a hit is complacency. You're like, oh, I'm great. I can't go do wrong. I have great taste, and that's when usually you fail afterwards. Uh, I think having competitors uh, really normally should bring the best in you. Uh, And I'm sure, like, sure, will say the same way. I'm sure we both wake up. I'm sure we both wake up in the middle of the night thinking, "Ah, I wish I'd done that one." You know, I think a lot of labels would have loved to have done Stranger Things. That was a big battle among labels to be. uh, uh, you know, uh, and it's a good thing. And, uh, and we've got the ones for, you know, we, I know when we got Deadpool, we we were very fortunate because that was a massive hit as well. Or when we did The Revenant or Under the Skin. or More recently this year, Euphoria or The Witcher. You know, all of us
0: have our hits. Wonderful, wonderful. Is there, is there a certain uh, movie that you've been trying to secure for a long time and you're just hoping since you started that you just want to release to the world through your, uh, through your label. But
2: if there is one that is so precious, I'm not going to talk about it on the here. Oh no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not really. I mean, no, uh, there's not, there's not like these projects uh, that I'm keeping an eye on uh, that I'm interested, but I can tell you this year I'm very, Excited because we're using tomorrow, actually, the soundtrack to the HBO series, We Are Who We Are. Ooh, and wonderful. it's my first time working. It's my it's a series by Luca Guadagnino. It's my first time working with Devante Hines, uh, the composer. So that's very exciting. That's also a part that's exciting, is to get to work with composers you've always been wanting to work with, that you love the music on Blood Orange. Devante Hines is someone who I think is phenomenal. So I'm excited, I'm excited about this first collaboration. Uh, next year, we're going to work with Emil Moseri on the score to Minari. It's a 24 movie that won a, I think the, won the grand prize at Sundance. And we are, our big project for the end of the year is the soundtrack to the anime, uh, animated film, uh, Over the Moon, which is a big musical animated film by Netflix. So this, these are the like the projects right now that we have on the docket that I'm excited for. Uh, in terms of acquisition, um, there's really not. I mean, is there, there's a bunch of Japanese projects that I would like to do reissues. I mean, I would love to bring to the world a vinyl reissue of Evangelion. Uh, I'm still yes. hopeful that I'm still hopeful it's gonna happen. I. Pretty hopeful also we, we're going to have more things coming from the Cowboy Bebop world. Uh, but there's not... No, I mean, there's projects. I can tell you projects that I wish I would have released, uh, you know, uh, that we we passed on, for instance. You know, uh, Big Little Lies is a, is a regret of mine. Uh, Midnight in Paris is also a regret of mine. And what else did I... Uh, a single man, uh, uh, the Tom Ford movie, which I think has a great score for uh, project like this. But I would say, yeah, when I saw, uh, yeah, that's uh, so, yeah, that's it, pretty much. Oh,
0: right. uh, yeah, that's uh, that's all sounds great. And to round off this this show, this this podcast episode, is there a particular uh, musical cue or movie scene that has always stuck with you, besides maybe E.T.
2: Ah uh, yes. Uh, the op- I have to go back to a project we talked about, the opening of Akira with uh, the motorcycle chase. Yep. That's a wonderful one. I just love that so much.
0: It is so good. It is so good. Well thank you, JC, for taking the time out of your schedule to talk with us on the unbalanced note. We so enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody, please, when you go to your local record stores, find all the Milan records, these soundtracks, these are coming up. Do you, is there, do you have a website that you can plug to tell everybody? Yes. If they can? Uh, you
2: can visit us on our website, www.milanrecords.com. Uh, we just, we launched it, uh, cleaned it up so you can see all our catalogs there and you can also get in touch with us. And if you have any question, I will probably be the one answering them.
0: Awesome, awesome. So, yeah, if you can get into Milan Records' website before Mark and I to buy up their catalog, please do so (laughs) because we will be there. But thank you so much.
2: No, thank you very much for the opportunity. It was great to talk to you guys, and thank you for what you're doing.
0: Thank you. Thank you.